The language of hope and the ethos of amazement have been partly squelched because they are a threat. And I'm not talking about the political kind, that's cheap hope. The hope that must be spoken is a hope rooted in the assurance that God does not quit even when the evidence warrants his quitting. We need imaginations that challenge the dominant reality. You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is your host, Stephen Roach. This is season two, episode nine, an ethos of amazement. This episode is excerpts from a keynote given by worship leader and founder of the Burn 24-7 prayer movement, Sean Foyt. I want to talk about the revival of amazement and hope. And when I talk about amazement, I mean the childlike kind. I mean the like geeked out kind. I love, one of my favorite things right now is to travel with my family around the world. I, I brought them to Iraq a few months ago. And I love how simple, but yet so, how profound they face these crises and these challenges. I love how that they're, they haven't been disappointed enough in life to worship or create from disappointment. They think everything they do is awesome because I think everything they do is awesome. And, and there's something about the freedom, about the sound of a six-year-old twirling around through refugee camps filled with brokenness, showing up, not understanding the complexities of the issues because they are very complex, my friends. But yet the joy that radiates off of a singing, twirling six-year-old because she just knows that her God is so good. And he's able to transform every situation. And I feel like, like for so long, we've been so scared of living in this amazed childlike place. And we try to squelch it down. And we try to tell people, don't get your hopes up. Like that's the most horrible theology. Don't get your hopes up, son. Thank God I'd never had a father that said that to me. I never had a father that tried to temper my expectations to dumb them down to a place where I wouldn't get too excited. And I feel like this morning, a big part of what God wants to do is rip off the limitations and to remind us again, it's a season to get your hopes up. The language of hope and the ethos of amazement have been partially forfeited because they are an embarrassment. <laughs> the language of hope and the ethos of amazement have been partly squelched because they are a threat. And I'm not talking about the political kind. That's cheap hope. I'm talking about the hope against all hope. I'm talking about the Romans. I'm talking about the Abraham looking at Sarah and she's old. <laughs> You're going to be the father of nations. Well, your wife's a hundred. Good luck. <laughs> I mean, can you, are you kidding me? I'm going to talk about barrenness in a little bit. I mean, barrenness all the time confronted the dreamers of the church. This is nothing new, but it says against all hope in hope, he hoped. The hope that must be spoken is a hope rooted in the assurance that God does not quit even when the evidence warrants his quitting. My favorite thing about worshiping with these guys in Iraq, and I, I, I mean, of course, I love like leading worship and 
stadiums and tours, and I love leading at Bethel because you can just sing Kumbaya and people just, you know. It's like easy to lead worship there. But I love even more being in the nations. We did 100 hours of worship. Uh, a big part of our strategy in the Middle East right now is to do just what you guys did on Thursday night here. You know, it's like Jehoshaphat said, we don't know what to do, God, but our eyes are on you. This is the most powerful terrorist organization in the history of the world and no government on the planet has an answer. Nobody has answers. So we just say, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And we just look to heaven and we begin to worship. And we have the audacity to believe that when we worship and pray, he moves on our behalf. But I love gathering with these guys for hundred hours. You know, we were with these Kurds and these, these, um, Yazidis and man, so many Muslims are getting saved guys across the Middle East. It is so outrageous. I mean, it is a little bit, a little bit happier than that. I mean, it's like really good, really good news. And, and, and you know, if you don't have a theology that allows for jihadists to come to Jesus, then you got to throw out the words of Paul. He wrote a third of the new Testament and he was the worst Christian killer of them all. But left and right, salvation is coming to these, to these people. And when we gather together uh, for these hours of worship and prayer, what I love so much about it is, is they don't actually worship from pain. Like, and I was kind of like, you know, they really wanted me to kick off this 100 hours of worship. And we were with several hundred um, Kurds and Yazidis. We were about 10 kilometers from Mosul, from the ISIS headquarters in Northern Iraq. And I was just thinking, how do I even begin this worship service? Like, I'm so nervous, like, welcome to church, guys. You know, it's like so much brokenness, so much despair. These guys have lost family members. They have kids that are caught in the child sex trade. They have, they've been fractured and divided. Their homes have been burned. Their villages have been erased. How do you just gather together and worship? And what was so crazy to me is the moment I played the first chord, this whole crew just exploded with joy. They just started spinning around. They just began to sing about hope. They began to sing about, I mean, it wasn't like one of these crews where it's like, we need a warm-up song. You know, like at church sometimes we're like, we haven't had coffee, we need a warm-up song. You know, it's like these guys come with such expectation because that's all that they have to live on is the hope that he will show up. It says in 1 Corinthians 4 that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. As artists, as creatives, like we have the ability to steward the mysteries of God when we come together and when we create and when we sing and when we dance. It promises us Jesus, you know, his disciples came to him again and again and they said, teach us how to pray. Because we recognize that the scope of your authority is connected to the depth of your intimacy and prayer. And we want to know how to pray. And, and he told them, pray that this place looks like that place. One of the things I'm excited about, and we're seeing this more and more, is for writers and painters and poets to write stuff that they don't know the answer to. Like every creative art, and the church doesn't have to end with the dove, a lion, an eagle, etc. I mean, we love those things, right? We love those things. But what if we created something that was so outrageously wild 
that the world just looked at it and went, whoa. And they would go to us, to the church, they would go, what does that mean? And we wouldn't feel like we would have to go, well, if you look at it, actually in the 10th hour, the sun comes down it this way and you can see this eagle that spreads out and the eagle represents, no, what if we actually said, I don't know what it means. What do you think it means? And we pulled them into a realm of mystery and we pulled them into a realm of unpredictability and we pulled them into a realm of something that was so far beyond. See guys, we cannot fully explain God and a lot of times we feel like we can. But what the world is attracted to is the mystery and the unpredictability and the vastness. It says, you know, Paul says that, you know, we as the church should make it a daily practice to geek out on the width and the height and the length of his love. That we should be a people that live in constant amazement, that we live in constant and perpetual delight at how wild he is. It says... Uh, Jesus had these three responses to him. Luke 9, the disciples said, we have seen strange things today. <laughs> Matthew 17, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces face down and were filled with awe. Luke 22, but marveling at his answer, they were silent. You know what I'm excited about in this realm of beauty is the return of us the Selah moments. Sometimes we get so nervous. It's like, we don't know what to do. We got to say something. We got to sing something. Well, what if we don't have to do anything? What if we just sit here and meditate and think and receive and hear? Like Selah, you know, the Selah moments that, were, that happened throughout the book of Psalms. Sometimes they mean just shut up. You know? And like... It's like, you know, how many of you guys have little kids? My wife, I swear, sometimes when she like, <laughs> it's such a bomb thing to do, you know? Sometimes when she like drops the kids off at school or whatever, she just gets in the car and closes the car. She just sits there. And I'm like, I, and then I go up to the car window and I go, uh, babe, what are you doing? She goes, I'm sitting. <laughs> in silence. <laughs> And I go, why are you doing that? She goes, because it's silent. <laughs> Any moms give me an amen to that, you know? It's like, and, and in the church, sometimes we, 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 and I feel like this is a part of the, the revival of the amazement, the revival of this, of this realm where we're inspired again is where we don't have to feel like we have to try so hard to create this profound thing. Sometimes we just need to go, whoa. Like we need more woes in the church again. The second thing, we need imaginations that challenge the dominant reality. The role of the prophetic, and it was mentioned last night with somebody that spoke, is about futuring fantasy. It's about dreaming. It's where the imagination precedes the implementation. It's where we return back to the place of dreaming. I thought, you know, God as I prayed into this whole thing of beauty and wonder, God, why have we missed the mark? Why have we start, like, why in the last hundred years has the church lost its rightful place to be the creative epicenter of the earth? I began to think about how our values have been so much on truth 
and theology, which are important values. Like we need good theology, otherwise we're weird and strange and we don't know what we believe. We need to believe in truth and we need to stand up for moral, you know, with a moral compass. But yet at the same time, just as much as we owe the world that, we owe the world an encounter with his beauty. And I just began to think about, and maybe you can just think with me, like when was the last time that God appeared to you in a three-point sermon? I'm not saying he can't move in three-point sermons. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But I'm saying when was the last time where he revealed himself to you and he was like, my brother, this is what I'm commanding you to. Poof, Roman numeral one. Poof, Roman numeral two. Poof, Roman numeral three. Go, go forth. And you're like, wow. No, actually, if you read throughout the Bible, God's way more swirly, you know? He reveals destinies. He, he prophesies through nature. He prophesies through wonder. He goes to Abraham, you know, who's super bummed out at his prophetic word because it hasn't happened and he's just so bummed and he's just, you know, hunkered down in his little tent and, you know, he's sitting there looking at his wife that I mentioned earlier that's really old and he's just, you know, ah, oh, God, what about this promise? And, 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 and the Lord goes, oh, Abraham, he goes, hey, just let's, hey, come outside. Let's take a walk. He doesn't even respond. He, I love the Lord doesn't respond until he brings Abraham into an environment where he can be inspired. Just think about that. He could have said, Abraham, I will smite thee in thy tent. No, he said, hey, hey, um, Abraham, hey, come outside the tent. Well, God, you didn't, you didn't answer my question. I, my, my question is, I've had this prophetic word that I was going to be a father of nations. My wife's really old and wrinkly, and I don't, want to, I don't want my servant over here to be the one. That's just weird. Like, God, I want, you know, what's the deal? And he goes, ah, oh, Abraham, just come outside the tent. And so he woos Abraham outside of the tent, and then he doesn't even respond to his complaining. See, the church, we feel like we have to respond all the time to everybody's issues. Like, what if we brought them outside of the tent? You know, when we go into these intensely Muslim environments, we don't go in trying to argue why Islam is wrong. We go in with the guitar and we bring a sound of healing to the place of brokenness where they're at. They don't want to argue. They want to have an encounter with the realm of hope that can pull them out of the crisis and the pain that they're in. You know, and the Lord speaks to Abraham and he goes, hey, just for funsies, let's count the stars. <laughs> you can imagine how frustrating he is. What do you mean count the stars? I want to know when she's going to conceive. He goes, no, no, let's just count the stars. Genesis 35, let's just count the stars. I mean, how much of a dreamer is our God? Then he speaks to Moses. Moses, here's my three-point mandate for you. Boom, you will leave the wilderness. Boom, you will go to Egypt. Boom, you will deliver God's people. No. He actually goes, hey, I'm just going to mess with you, Moses. I'm going to set this bush on fire. I'm just going to mess with you. See if you notice a bush that's on fire but is not being consumed. I mean, guys, this is all throughout the Bible. This is how God is the God who inspires. 
And so, so many times we've dumbed him down to this super totes boring. You know what I'm saying? The role of the prophetic, the role of the dreamer, you know, Joel 2.28 says, in the last days I'll pour out my spirit. You know, your sons will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Did you know the greatest dreams of God, and this is for the older generation here, in the life of the patriarchs of the, of the Bible came in the 11th hour. Third point. Beauty is what draws in the lost. You know, the number one salvation tool right now across the Middle East is divine encounters. This is happening in the Muslim world, in the Buddhist world, in the Hindu world. I was in India two weeks ago. And uh, man, they love some Stephen Roach over there. You and all your animal skins. They would love some Stephen Roach over there. I brought Luke Skaggs over there with me a few years ago and they loved him too, but... One of the most phenomenal things we were gathered with this, the first ever that I know of in that region, we gathered all these worship leaders and, and they were all from Muslim, Hindu, Sikh, Buddhist backgrounds. And they all had recently just got saved and no training. They had never been to worship school. They don't have a Hillsong CD. They, they, they're like from the villages, you know? And they came together and to hear their stories was absolutely profound. Like this was just two weeks ago. And I just, being in the presence of these guys, you know, and it's like, of course I come in, it's like Sean, the American worship leader that has a, you know, a music recording contract, you know, and I come in this atmosphere of these guys and I'm just like, start weeping. I'm like, you need to pray over me. I want to be a real worship leader again, you know? Like these guys are daily and regularly seeing visions of Jesus. They're writing songs from their encounters. Like, like literally, like one of the dude's songs was that he was in a mosque. He was getting ready to leave the, you know, the chance of the mosque. And all of a sudden, Jesus appeared to him as a man in white. And he said, come and follow me. He walked out of the mosque. He became a believer. He didn't really know what that meant, but he started following Jesus. Somebody gave him a Bible. He began to get persecuted. He began to get, and so he just began to write songs. And I said, well, what is the content that you're writing songs? Well, you know, you've been saved a couple weeks. And he's like, I just write songs about how beautiful the man in white is. If that's all I ever write about, that is enough for me. And it just being in these places around the world, I get the privilege to go to about 30 nations a year and I see these guys, the beauty of encounter is what's drawing them in. Not the arguments and the apologetics, but it's beauty and encounter. The purpose of art is washing the dust of daily life off of our souls. That's what Picasso said. Van Gogh said, if you hear a voice within you say you cannot paint, then by all means paint and that voice will be silenced. Yeah. <sighs> Last point, and now I'm going to land the plane here and show you guys a couple pictures. Turn to Isaiah 54. I want to talk about the role in the church. I'm just going to recap here. I'm just way into this. I'm going to recap for you guys. So you have it. One, the revival of the amazement. Two, the imagination that challenges the dominant reality. 
Three, beauty that draws in the lost. And four, songs that break barrenness. And I was meditating on the fact that Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, and Elizabeth all experienced barrenness. All had dynamic, powerful, prophetic words, and all were barren. Can you imagine? I mean, did you realize that? That the entire forefathers of the church experienced barrenness. They had these massive, ginormous, prophetic words, but yet they had to walk through the tension of being barren. They had to actually, as we teach a lot of our worshipers all around the world, they had to sing it until they see it. And there is a sound that is breaking barrenness off of the earth, that is breaking not only just in the natural, and in, 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 in we've seen actually in the last year, we've had a massive breakthrough in three young couples that we know, one of them being my own family members that could not conceive. We just worshiped and worshiped and worshiped and worshiped until that thing was broken. And all three of them today have babies. In Isaiah 54, says, sing, O barren woman. You who never bore a child, burst into song and shout for joy. You who are never in labor. Crazy. Come on. God, we just need to be in touch with our pain. We want to write a song about pain because we're experiencing pain. The world knows a lot about pain. They got a lot of songs about pain. They understand pain. They understand hardship. A rock doesn't need another song of pain. They know what pain's like. I'm not saying you can't write those songs of lamentations or you can't write those songs, but I'm saying right now across the earth, we need a song of audacious joy that breaks through the barrenness of our situations. We don't need more Christians protesting and picketing. There's a lot of that going on. And I'm not saying that things of justice we shouldn't fight for, but what we need is people that are living in another realm from another place, bringing that reality to this one. I am on a tirade against angry Christians. Angry, bitter, cynical Christians. Like, we got to end this. It is really bad marketing. If you're a grumpy Christian, stop it. You're a bad marketer of what God's called you to be. It says, in the face of barrenness, sing. You who never in labor, burst into song and shout for joy. Shout for joy in your season of barrenness. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations. And what a privilege to come and hopefully bring a global perspective for the demand that the world has right now on the creativity and the art that is inside of you. Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? You're a big deal. If you're not creating 
the world is losing out. I mean, my wife, even just a simple, my wife, she changes a lot of diapers. But in the midst of her routine and the craziness of raising three kids and traveling all over the world and everything, she started to paint again. It's profound. How much is she's not doing it so she can sell her paintings on Instagram or whatever. And that's cool if you're doing that's. But she's doing it because she's called to do it because it's inside of her. She has to do it. And it changes the atmosphere. It changes the dynamic. It changes the aesthetic, the beauty, the wonder. It changes our home. It lifts the mood inside of our bedroom. When she's creating and she's coming alive, we need Christians coming alive. We need to create, not because we want validation or we want people to like it. Who cares if they don't like it? That's not why we create. The artists in the Renaissance period weren't even known in their lifetime. They didn't have Instagram accounts. Most of everyone thought they were weird because they were so ahead of the curve. I love when our art is cool. I love when it looks sweet and I love when, when we get better at it and when we grow and we excel and I love when the world takes notice. I love it when we have downloads and albums and hits on YouTube and I think all that stuff is great. I think it's important. But I really want you to realize that this wave of renaissance that God's raising up. It's not to make the church cooler. We're not in a battle for who's the coolest church on the block. It's so that it makes the church more powerful and effective in bringing change to the world around us.